Hi, you're listening to Walkley Talks with me, Helen Sullivan. The focus of Storyology 2017 was the matter of trust. How do we earn our audience's trust, and how do we keep it? One of this year's keynote speakers was Maria Ressa, CEO and executive editor of Rappler.com, a social news network which uses a hearts and mind approach to news through a unique mood navigator. In her talk, she looks at how the state-controlled social media propaganda machine in her home country of the Philippines incites hate and erodes trust in media and other institutions. First, I want to show you, uh, to get to the mob, to get to the new battleground, I want to take you to the past. So I'll show you where I'm coming from, what we did with the paradigms that we came up with, tested them, and how 2016 turned it all upside down, and how we now have to deal with uh, I think this is the greatest challenge, and the, the greatest challenge to journalism is what happens when uh, you're the one attacked and truth is, is contested. So I became a journalist in the late 80s, and we had to call our editors on, on pay phones uh, and then dictate it. So from the, from the 80s to the 90s, 80s here, 90s of the live shots. I don't know if you remember all of a sudden. Uh, in the Philippines, to do a live shot cost $20,000 at the beginning. Time I left in 2005, it was um, $400. And of course, by the time CNN did the DNG, Digital News Gathering, I was doing live shots every hour. That has an impact on how much time we have to think, how much we speak and how much time we get to speak to other people to tell us what the story is. So in 2000s, this is East Timor, that was really my first big intersection with Australia. Um, I spent some time in Darwin, I spent a lot of time in East Timor, but this was how amazing I felt. This was one of those moments when the entire 91% of the infrastructure of East Timor was, was shattered. Uh, the soldiers, the Indonesian soldiers, when they were going out, punched holes in the pipes. Uh, there was no electricity, and yet we could go live. And the way we went live here was we brought in a cargo container. We brought in everything, and we were on top of the con cargo container to give you the story live. It was amazing. This is, to me, was you know what being a journalist was. Uh, and then after 2000, uh, I went to ABS-CBN, which is the largest news group in the Philippines. That's this. I, I left CNN in 2005, and this was in 2005 when we embraced citizen journalism. My, the owners of the network thought I was crazy. They were like, what are you going to get from citizens? Uh, we pushed, in 2007, I pushed all of our reporters onto Twitter, onto Facebook. And again, I had a six-month battle with the board in order to be able to do that, because they were saying, you know, what are the guidelines? How can you let every reporter speak? And I said, well, they do anyway, right? Uh, they'll just have their own accounts. So. ABS-CVN embraced the crowd. That was the first experiment that we had. I was with that for six years, heading the news group, but leading a large news group is really painful because when you're the top of it, getting the culture to change, and if you're in charge of that, you know how difficult that can be. So in 2010, I decided, all right, I'm tired of politics. I just want to see if these ideas work. So we started Rappler in 2012. 
So all of the things that change drastically, I mean, this is just an idea of how technology changed through one reporter's eyes. Um, because I talk war zone, these are the lessons. And, and for me, keep these, I, I tell you these because they're really important for today, I think. Uh, the war zones just have changed. The battlefield is different. But my five lessons in 30 some odd years of reporting remain the same. The first is, gosh, whatever it is, make the choice to learn. Um, and I learned this when I was still in school. My, 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 my thesis in, um, advisor told me, you know, if you don't know something, don't go down the path you already know. Because you already know where it's going to lead. Go, make the choice to learn. And it, it's worked so far. It's really hard as we get older and as we lead organizations. Because when you lead organizations, all of a sudden you've got PLs, you've got lots of people, you've got jobs uh, relying on some of your calls. But make the choice to learn, especially now. Second, we get in our own way. Embrace your fear. If you touch your fear, you grab it, nothing stops you. And, and I'll say this from a war zone area, like again, from both of these, I'll use East Timor, because it's, it's, it feels like on, only yesterday. Uh, but uh, all of us were in, uh, in East Timor right at the time when, when we knew violence was going to break out. And all the journalists tended to stay at the Turismo Hotel because it was right in front of the water. <laughs> it was really nice. But I knew that when the, the thing that spreads the most in a pack is fear. And when fear spreads and you're with a whole group of people, you can't help yourself. So with the CNN team, what I did is I tried, I did something kind of foolish, it seemed, but it worked out in the end. We took a government house in the government compound uh, further away from the Turismo, took over that house, and we were the last group to be in East Timor. Because when the militia began attacking, everyone left. We were there just a few days later, but those few days mattered. Um, so my, my lesson about embracing your fear is the enemy is what you make of it in your head. So anytime I feel there's an enemy, I go to them. Again, people tell me I'm foolish that way, right? But embrace your fear. If you're not afraid, that nothing stops you. Third, beware of the pack. That's uh, East Timor again, beware of the pack. Fourth, on taking risks. This is from hostile environment training. You know, CNN used to do our hostile environment training. They flew us to Sydney, and we would go to the bush. And they'd get us all lost, and we'd have to find our way through all of this stuff there, right? Um, this is one of the things AKE used to tell us. Anytime you're in a dangerous situation, if there's shooting that's going on, shooting from this side to that side, take a look. If the person is lying in the middle, needing help, if the shooting is here to here, if you go in and grab that person and take them out, what are the chances that you're gonna get hit? It's probably better to go get help or to try to stop the shooting on one side. So always assess, what's, I'm gonna go help you. That's our goal, right? Journalists are those foolish people who go in and shine the light. But always assess, danger to me, danger to you. I first assess, danger to me, danger to you. Um, a journalist would say, no story is worth dying for. I tell myself that all the time now. And then the last one is, excess within control. Any story, 
the lives that we, we build, excess within control is this idea that you have to really let go, you have to let the emotions flow, but yet have the discipline to control it. Uh, if it's too much emotion, it's overindulgent. If it's too much discipline, it's got no inspiration. So whether it's a story or whether it was a, uh, whether it's whatever we're building, whether it's Rappler, it's excess within control. And I take that from like playing the piano, right? When you're doing, when you're playing something, a Chopin piece, uh, you can't play Chopin well if you haven't done scales hours every day. The technical part is important for the creation, for the artistic part. I say this because I think our world today with technology, with the crowd, is a work of creation. And so it's excess within control. We need to still retain the discipline we used to have. Um, I'll move on after that. And, and the reason I, I've told you that is keep that in mind for the end when the mob comes, because that's a new battlefield. This is video of uh, what led to where Rappler is. Three reporters of ABS-CBN were kidnapped by the Abu Sayyaf in 2008. And this was the crisis room that we had working with the police. We drew a line between the crisis managers and our newsroom. And we treated our newsroom the way we treated every other group. But I say this because in doing this, we found that Journalists actually make the best negotiators for um, conflict, for trying to get them out. We got them out within 10 days. And in the 10 days, these Sestrilon was our anchor reporter, our two cameramen who were with her, Jimmy and Angel, um, led to this. And I tell you this because this then connects to social media. Uh, the last book I wrote in 2011 is called From Bin Laden to Facebook. And we charted this guy, Sali Said, um, his connections to Hambali, the Indonesian behind the Bali uh, attacks in 2002, 2005, and then his connections, he goes all the way to Bin Laden and Abu Bakar Bashir, another Indonesian. The reason why I say this is because this connection to Sali Said, he's the 18-year-old guy who kidnapped the three journalists. It's network analysis Network analysis leads to information cascades. So let me jump and show you how they all come together. When I was working on this book in 2011, I began to chart social networks. And that was really the, that was really before social media had taken off. And we realized that if we could harness the power of social networks, we could map the spread of the ideology when you're talking about terrorism. But when you're talking about through a group of people, you can map the spread of emotions and you can impact behavior. Okay, let me show you the world today. So keep in mind those ideas, social networks, emotions, spreading through people. And let me show you how it evolved. This is today now, real world, hashtag pray for Marawi. This is what I deal with on a daily basis. On Twitter, this trended, if you remember, pray for Manchester, the bombing in Manchester happened uh, within the same 12 hour period. Uh, Pray for Marawi trended on May 23rd, the same day that President Duterte declared martial law in Mindanao. When we looked at it, this is a tool that, that Rappler developed that looks at how communities form on Twitter. And this is a very strange formation of community for hashtag Pray for Marawi because 
there's no cascade. It shouldn't be closed circles. So we dug down deeper and we found this is Ground Zero tweet. Um, it's talking about, please don't ignore, they're all over the city. But we found that that tweet was retweeted 54,046 times in the first minute. Bots, right? So you can kind of see what it is. Now, why is that important? Well, that trended right before the government declared a state of martial law in Mindanao. This is our reality, and this is the danger ahead. Bots, fake accounts, hate, manufactured reality. This is what I now deal with. And here's the landscape. This is why it's so easy, and this is what set it up. Um, it's the fact that over the last few decades, we've had so much information coming at us. You're talking about 6,000 square meters of information storage material created every second. So what does that mean? Well, we've long talked about how exponential growth is all really wonderful for society and how it is going to disrupt every industry. This hockey stick is the growth of Airbnb, of Uber, of anything that isn't linear growth. Um, this is, so let me put it in context of media in a positive way. When I used to manage ABS-CBN News, our growth was linear. If we grew 4% to 10% in a year, it was huge. Rappler, when we started it in 2012, was growing 100% to 300% year on year. So it's not as fast as the exponential growth of Airbnb and Uber, but it is way faster than a traditional news group. So here's that area of disruption. That's looking at it from a company's perspective. Now look at it from disinformation's perspective. If 6,000 square meters of information is coming at you every second, this is the exponential growth of it. And if someone can harness it, this is the exponential growth of propaganda. Here's my country. The Philippines, as of January 2017, here it is. It's number one in the number of hours spent online. We have roughly 52 million Filipinos on the internet. Of the 52 million, 97% are on Facebook. What does that mean? So this is part of the reason I, I created Rappler in the Philippines. And this was the idea behind it. You can look at it as both content creation and um, native advertising. This is both the business model and the content creation model for Rappler. So this creates content, this is distribution. We pushed it out on social media. Social media led to crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing gave us data back, that's big data that we, we funneled right back into the creation mix. Same thing for business. Uh, when we started, this was native advertising, which was pushed out on social media. We sold social media conversations, which then led to selling crowdsourcing events, which then led to data. That data was funneled right back into the mix. This was the foundation. We put a civic engagement arm on top of Rappler, which is something journalists didn't used to do, but we always wanted to, right? In, when I was doing CNN, when I was doing ABS-CBN, um, when a disaster happens in the Philippines, the journalists are always first on the scene. And when I headed ABS, all of a sudden, to draw these lines, because we're really, we need to draw the lines, the reporter would go in, 
but going in, if we had a chopper, I'd send in someone for public service along with the reporter. Because you don't want the reporter to be giving out water. You want the reporter to be interviewing, but you also don't want to stay there uh, without giving something out. So this was what we did for our network in the Philippines. Well, civic engagement now uh, is part of Rappler. It's called Move PH. We had a blogging platform on top of Rappler, and this is the, the way we keep track of our communities. We actually map our communities on social media. Every story has a mood meter. We have a patent for a user engagement model. This was before Facebook put emotions, uh, emojis on it. But the idea behind this is that this is the easiest form of crowdsourcing. You can actually look at how an event ripples through your society. And um, you can navigate through Rappler based on emotions. Our median age is 22 to 23 years old. Our bureau in Jakarta is very similar. Median age is 22 to 23 years old, except Indonesia has 250 million people. This is the change model. And I realized that it worked for Rappler. It also worked for President Duterte. He was the first political candidate to really harness social media in the Philippines to win. For us, what you do on social media carries an emotion. And it's emotion that spreads fastest, whether it's in the physical world or in the virtual world, right? Um, that emotion travels on social networks. Social networks are your family and friends in the physical world. In social media, social networks are your family and friends on steroids. It's got no boundaries of time and space. So you can take this event, if I was live streaming it and I was live tweeting it, its, ex its reach would grow times four. Um, we were looking at these numbers. So once it spreads through social networks, that impacts behavior. This is exactly the change model that President Duterte used to win our 2016, the May 2016 elections. Now let me go to how the mob was formed. Disinformation on social media, manipulation on social media. In the Philippines, it was actually the corporations that first uh, introduced it. 2014, uh, the first time we noticed bots being actively used on Twitter was a telco war. Um, this is, uh, Smart is a telecommunication company. They were using hashtag smart free internet, distributing free internet to, Filip to Filipinos. But then they found out that every time someone used the, the hashtag smart free internet, a bot or a fake account would target that person with a negative message. And they were able to essentially ring off the millennials, keep them away from the smart account using bots and fake accounts. This is a strategy that looks very much like a communist strategy, ring the city from the countryside, right? Um, so think about it like this. If every time you use the hashtag storyology, someone programmed a bot to spew hatred at you. That's kind of the way this has evolved now. So when did it move to politics? Okay, April 2016. Um, a student in UP Los Baños asked then Mayor Duterte a question about extrajudicial killings in Davao. And his supporters on social media actually became the first online mob that we had seen. Here, this one takes his phone number, the student's phone number, and posts it on Facebook. This was a page that was created to 
to wish death to this student, right? On Facebook, death to this student. And then lots of other things. This was the first time we saw an online mob. Within about uh, two days, Facebook took the page down and the campaign team apologized and asked the mob to step back. That was during more civilized times in the Philippines. I'm gonna show you the way we, the investigation we did, and it's a three-part investigation that was released last October. Um, September 3rd, there was a bombing in Davao City. Uh, that bombing has since been attributed to ISIS, but that bombing um, created this. A lot of, there were originally 15 websites that took an old Rappler story with a new title the Rappler story was talking about how a, a man with a bomb was arrested in Davao, and they made the mistake of adding a link to Rappler so we could monitor how, how much traffic it had. These fake, these websites then w spread the fake news, so this was a March story spread in September, um, on the Duterte campaign pages. This story was number one on Rappler for three days. Um, we have an average of 10 million uniques uh, a month, right? So, so this, to be number one on Rappler, was huge. But then we monitored 15 of these spread on the Duterte pages, and that happened about an hour before the government declared a state of lawlessness in Davao. So there was a direct link. What we did, we did a story. That was the first of the series, Propaganda War, Weaponizing the Internet. Then we went on. We took a look at the trolls that we were getting. I, I, this, is the, this is an account, and we put it on an Excel sheet because we're journalists, right? We're just not just tech people. We put it on an Excel sheet to really take apart. Her name is Luvimin Cancho. So we put every element that we could track about this Facebook account on this spreadsheet, and then we went and found who were her friends and who were the friends who were following each other. Again, these were during more less sophisticated times. We found 26 accounts on Facebook following each other. We took down every single detail they gave, including where they went to school, who they work for, uh, their hometown, and where they live. And then we gave each vertical here to a reporter. I took the vertical of who they worked for, and we verified every single thing. Every single detail was false. It's fake. And these guys, 26 accounts forming together, game an algorithm on Facebook. That's called a sock puppet network. You know the sock puppets, right? It's a sock puppet network. It pretends to be real, but it isn't. We put this in a reverse imaging on, on Google, a Korean pop star. Um, so th this is the piece. What we found was that this, this sock puppet network of 26 fake accounts influenced up to 3 million other accounts on Facebook. 26 fake accounts, 3 million. By November of that year, we knew that there were at least 50,000 accounts under the influence of what we called the propaganda machine. Um, in the French elections, for context, Facebook took down 30,000 fake accounts. And if they didn't, would Macron have won? If they took down 30,000 fake accounts in the Philippines, would Duterte still have won? This was the series. 
the second part, how Facebook algorithms impact democracy. This is the Mocha Usan, who is the anchor account of, of this propaganda machine. Right after, we, the weekend after we published this series, so I, I wrote two of the stories, this is what I got the weekend after. Maria, you are a waste of sperm. I like that one. Your mother should have swallowed you. Again, I won't even go there, right? Um, uh, I'm called an oligarch, lots of different things. But this one I put forward because I, I thought this person was real. This one is not. This is a fake account. So I took his, his post, and then I put it on my Facebook account and asked if anyone knew him. He's a doctor in Cagayan de Oro City, young doctor. He had just graduated. And once he had been exposed on social media, uh, die, stupid bitch, if you don't love our, like our country, our president leave our country for. Sexism, misogyny, let's see what else. Um, once we posted it, he apologized and said, oh no, I left my account open in an internet cafe. So I went on his account and then showed him how many times he had done this to other women journalists. I wasn't the first. Um, but we did the rest of it on private message because he, I don't think he knew that this was wrong. Is that crazy? Um, then it became this. So I will show you how it evolved. I, we published a transcript of a conversation between President Duterte and President Trump. Hashtag arrest Maria Ressa, the propaganda machine, the scale of it. By March of 2017, we had the public post 250 million comments, maybe 11 million different accounts that were going at it. Um, they started trying to trend hashtag arrest Maria Ressa. I want to show you how it goes from the propaganda machine to real people and how the sexism and misogyny gets worse. This was a campaign account on Twitter. Ipatawag uh, call her to the Senate, hashtag arrest Maria Ressa. Uh, this then jumps to a real person. I can smell the arrest and closure of rapper.com. And then it goes into real nastiness that, you know, for a little while I was ashamed of it. Then I realized that's exactly the way they want to make me feel. So here you go. This is a real person, a graduating senior. And as soon as I posted this, his school sent me an apology letter. And, you know, anyway, look, maybe Maria Ressa's dream is to become the ultimate porn star in a gangbang scene. She's desperate to get laid. Nice. Um, and then we get this. Another student, right? So I think of the values, another young man, me to the Philippine government, make sure Maria Ressa gets publicly raped to death when martial law expands to Luzon. It would bring joy in my heart. I'm not alone. They like to attack me because I am not going to stay quiet. But good news. <laughs> our general, the head of our armed forces, actually stepped in. So I told you bots, fake accounts, here's the fake news. So Asian policy dot press is a fake news site um, says that Rappler's Maria Ressa claims 90 people per minute wanted to rape her actually the claim on BBC was that the average threats number of threats I got that weekend was 98 messages per hour 98 messages per hour so that lasted a month that's partly automated 
partly inciting. And one of the big things I think that needs to be defined by the intermediaries is what is the line between free speech and inciting to hate, right? Inciting to violence. So this comes out, this fake news. Then other people started to, uh, to defend me, and that's because I, did, I didn't stay quiet. I, in this one, I was like, okay, I, I've just left all of it. If you want to see more there, I leave them. I leave the posts on my account. Not No 90 rape threats per minute, just covering up failed leader. A blogger wrote an open letter to the head of the armed forces because soldiers were jumping in on it. And our, our uh, head of armed forces chief actually took disciplinary action against soldiers, and then he publicly apologized. That's... In a year long, that was the first time there was a public apology or even any public, um, a public admission that there is something wrong. So here's the landscape of who the propaganda network is. You have this idea, 90, 9, and 1. 90, 9, and 1. 90% of people don't care. 9% are the advocates. 1% creates the content. This is the 1% that creates the content for the propaganda machine, and they are broken down by economic demographics. Uh, SAS takes care of the 1%, the pseudo-intellectual. Um, Thinking Pinoy is a man who uh, takes care of the middle class. I watched his account grow from 1,000 to half a million on Facebook. And Mocha Uson is the singer-dancer who takes care of the mass base, followers of more than five million. This is the account, the, the social media propaganda network that attacks critics of the administration, perceived critics and journalists. This is the ecosystem of the Philippines now. Aside from that, it jumps out of the social media propaganda, the echo chambers, into the real world through um, news groups like the Manila Times. The Manila Times is now, their their owner is, uh, is is Duterte's PR guy internationally. And SAS, underneath, um, writes for this. Uh, Thinking Pinoy, well, let's see, I'll show you what happened. Um, then there's state media. State media, the secretary of, of, the press secretary actually proudly told me with Peter when we were in Hong Kong for Facebook, said, you know, Maria, I'm really happy because we're sending our reporters for the state media groups to Ru China and Russia for training. So glad you're laughing at that. <laughs> but he, he was really serious. So they're being trained by China and Russia. And then here's the last part. This is the closing the loop on the information ecosystem. The funnel, the anchor account of the propaganda machine has just been put in charge of social media in the president's own communications team. So there's your state. It's online, um, state-sponsored online hate. Okay. We need protection for journalists against online threats and intimidation. This is not just the Philippines. I took apart the Philippine landscape for you, but um, this is happening in many countries around the world. Uh, some of them in Myanmar, Indonesia, uh, different reasons. Um, here's my crucial question. When does free speech turn into dangerous speech? When do you incite to hatred and when do you incite to violence? I've increased security in Rappler because of that difficulty, that gray area. In a war zone, I can see when someone is shooting at someone else and stay out of danger. In this new 
battleground. It's much more difficult. Trust and credibility, how do we maintain it without splintering into echo chambers? And then we need to do this in addition to the to this great stories that, that you saw earlier. We need funding for investigations at a time when news groups' business models are crumbling. More than 90% of new digital ad spend in the United States is going to Facebook and Google. Um, in the Philippines last year, it was in 2016, it was 72%. We expect it to be higher than 85% this year. Um, we got to focus on the new battlefield in the virtual world. We've got to expose the people who are manipulating behind the scenes, and that can lead to things outside of our nations, because one of the things that we're talking about is disinformation. And where did where is the ground zero of this information? It actually leads to Russia in some instances. But these are things we need to talk about. Uh, the key thing is, good God, this is creative destruction, and we cannot le let the evil forces win. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast. If you've liked this podcast, there are a couple of things you can do to support it. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com forward slash subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes and other Walkley news. Rate us on iTunes. Or join the conversation on Twitter and like us on Facebook. This podcast was produced with help from freelance journalist and fabulous intern Courtney Hunter and former Walkley superstar Kate Golden in Sydney, Australia. Thanks for listening.